Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 252. 252. Man, time careens on by, does it not? So what I want to do is talk about uh, some of the challenging issues that the resurgence of kinism has presented. I've been doing battle with kinism for decades now. I've been fighting with kinism for, for decades, and I'm going to continue to fight with kinism. But one of the reasons that we have to do this more and more is because the multi- multiculturalism that's being crammed down our throats is the sort of thing that is guaranteed to provoke overreactions. And that's what I think we're seeing now. So just to baseline, the Bible doesn't really give us the category of racism. If you wanted to uh, condemn racism as a sin, the problem that you would have is finding in the scriptures any concept of race. We don't really, there's one race, it's a human race. And God is in the process in the Christian church of creating and establishing a new race, a new humanity in Jesus Christ. So there's basically one race of men. All of us are descended from Adam and Eve. All of us are at one level cousins. Or put another way, all of us are descended from Noah and his wife. So we're In that respect, we're all one race, we're all together. At the same time, we are not all members of the same tribes. We're not all members of the same ethnicity. So, what happened was this ethnicities formed as a result of God's judgment at Babel. So, all of the human race had one language, we were one people, and they they began building the Tower of Babel after the flood. And God came down, took the threat very seriously. God came down and confused the languages. And as a consequence, men scattered, and they scattered in different directions, hanging out now with the people they could understand, the people they could communicate with. So God scattered the nations. And we see in Pentecost a great reversal of Babel. So uh, in the Christian church, we see an unwinding of Babel or a means for humanity to come back together, but only in Christ. Now, uh, once the people who were speaking this new language that they acquired at the tower congregated, they all found each other, and they went to live on the other side of the mountain or the other side of the river, naturally, you would marry within that group. You, You would want to marry within the group that you could understand. And as you married and married within that group, certain ethnic traits would begin to form. So um, every creationist believes that blacks and orientals and whites and all, all the different ethnic groupings of men are all variations on a theme descended from Noah and his wife. So if we rounded up 500 Americans, let's say, 250 men, 250 women, and dropped them off on a, an island in the South Pacific and came back 500 years later, we would come back to a tribe that had one language and a certain set of marked features. So that, that's how you get 
German shepherds. That's how you that's that's how you get certain breeds, right? So uh, these ethnicities, these sorts of ethnic traits, began to develop, and they had different customs and different things that they would eat, and different languages and different forms of worship, and so on. So they would they would be divided from one another: barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Greek, and so on. Now, what the uh, scriptures do is they provide us with a way that um, brings us back into a form of unity so that we can repent of our ethnic sins. And our ethnic sins are, uh, should be grouped into two main categories. There's ethnic vainglory, where it's, that's the we're number one, we're number one uh, mentality. We are on top of the world. We are the, we are the uh, alpha dog tribe. Uh, that's vainglory. And then the other is animosity. So there's ethnic vainglory is sinful because vainglory is sinful. And animosity, ethnic animosity is sinful because animosity, plain old vanilla animosity is sinful. So Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive as a gift? And if you received it as a gift, why do you boast as though you did not? So because of these divisions of culture and food and language and place and background and all of that, these different ethnic groups, depending on who was the top dog and who was not, uh, would give way in different ways to either hostility or vainglory. And Christ came to erase the vainglory, and he came to erase the malice. He did not come to erase the ethnicities. I, th I think it is um, self-evident, as um, Stephen Wolf mentions in his new uh, book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, that had Adam never fallen and his children had spread out over the world, various ethnicities would have developed naturally. But the, because it would be an unfallen world, there wouldn't have been any malice in it and there wouldn't have been any vainglory in it, but there would have been different shapes and sizes and colors. So what Christ does is he comes to erase the sin, deal with the sin. He doesn't come to erase the Frenchness of the Frenchman, or the Americanness of the American, or the Africanness of the African, or the Chineseness of the Chinese. He's not trying to erase ethnicity per se. Right? He's, what he's doing is erasing or dealing with or forgiving or mortifying those things, those sinful things we do with it. So, this is a large subject that needs to be unpacked, um, and and I'm going to be returning it, no, returning to it, no doubt, over and over again. But the main thing to realize is that Christ came not to erase natural relations. We still have children. We still have mother and father. Paul says the honor your father and mother is still the first commandment with a promise. And so, why would I honor my father and mother and rely on God's promise and not honor my grandfather? my grandmother, or my great-grandfather, my great-grandmother. Uh, and as soon as you get to that level, you're talking about your kin, right? So there's nothing wrong with natural affection. There's nothing wrong with natural affection. There's nothing wrong with natural bonds. There is something wrong with vainglory and animosity. So, all for now. Always will be God. Continuing on with the podcast 252, in our ongoing pursuit of a degree in hamartiology, we come to 
enochos, E-N-O-C-H-O-S, enochos, which means to be guilty of something. In the biblical uses, sometimes the guilt is real guilt before God. In other words, God considers it to be a, a true sin. And other times, it is simply alleged to be guilt by false accusers. We'll see, we'll see that in a moment. The first instance is what happens when someone comes to the Lord's table without dealing with the quarrels and fusses that he's had with other members of the body. So if you've been fighting with other people in your church, and then you come to the Lord's table together, what happens? Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.27 So we should not come to the body and blood of the Lord. And in coming unworthily is not primarily not understanding the theology of what happens in the bread and the wine as we partake together. The principal sin is the sin of division and spiting and biting and devouring within the body. So, if you come to eat the bread, the bread represents the one loaf of the congregation, and you're at odds. If you're at somebody else's throat in the congregation, and you're eating the bread as though you were all harmoniously one, uh, you're eating unworthily. You're drinking unworthily. The second use is where James teaches us that the law of God is all of a piece. It is not possible to break one part of the law and leave the rest intact. The law of God is not like a series of French pane windows where some can be broken and others not. No, it's more like a plate glass window, and it does not matter much where you put the hole. The whole window is broken. So if you have a plate glass window, you can put the hole in the middle, and you could put the hole in the lower right-hand corner or the upper left-hand corner. The window is broken. It's not like a series of French panes where you break one, window, one pane out and you can replace it, but the other, other panes are okay. So James tells us this in James 2.10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. There are two instances which are what we see recorded in the reaction of the Sanhedrin to Jesus at his trial. These are the instances of the false accusations that I referred to earlier. Matthew 26.66 says this, What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of, there's our word, he is guilty of death. And then in Mark 14.64, Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. That's enokos. They, they deemed him to be guilty. Now, of course, the Lord never sinned, which means that the Lord was perfect and he was not guilty, as, as they accused him of being. But they, they convicted him on a blasphemy charge. And the last translation, the last instance of this word, renders it as subject to. This is clearly a sinful condition, if not a specific sin itself. This is in Hebrews 2.15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So because of our sinfulness, uh, we live the entire course of our lives in bondage, subject to bondage to fear. And that is, that is a direct consequence, a direct result of our uh, sinful condition. God don't never change. He's God. So continuing on with the podcast, episode 252, uh, my book review uh, uh, this time is an interesting little book called Small Preaching by a gent named Pennington. Small Preaching. 
Now, I I like to read um, I like to read wordsmithy books, and I like to read books on preaching. And I like to read books on uh, any, basically if you live as I do as a writer and a speaker and someone who traffics in words. I want to. Um, I, I just want to regularly uh, find myself challenged by what other people have to say. And as a, as a preacher, I uh, I almost always, if I see a book on preaching that looks promising, it looks. Uh, I'll, I'll pick it up. So I was um, recently in a Christian bookstore, saw this book, didn't hadn't seen it before, picked it up, and thoroughly enjoyed it. This there are there are a number of books out there on you might call them standard homiletic texts and and they go over uh, you know there are some great ones like uh, lectures to my students by uh, Charles Spurgeon but this uh, what i would call this book as sort of a it's a good book for experienced pastors men who have been preaching for a while and who are in a rhythm of preaching and have their way of doing it and they want a light book. This is a, a pretty small book, uh, maybe 100 pages, and um, it, it's a quick read. And the value of it is that it sort of fills in the cracks or makes you think of certain aspects of preaching that are not necessarily the main central thing, but it, make, it brings you up short and says, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, or I, I, I hadn't approached it that way. Small Preaching by Pennington, it really is a uh, a fruitful, fruitful exercise, a fruitful book. You're, it's not the sort of thing that you would give to a seminary student in place of training him how to how to do exegesis and how to frame the the main message. It's the sort of thing that you really do uh, give to experienced preachers who want to uh, step up their game just a tad. So. There we go. Small Preaching uh, by Pennington.